In this podcast, I will be speaking to Professor Nick Zhua and Associate Professor Qingli Chai Kutsa. I'll start with you, Qingli. Uh, tell us about yourself. Thank you. So, yes, I work as a respiratory and sleep physician at the Flinders, Flinders Medical Centre in South Australia. And I'm also a, a senior postdoctoral re, uh, research fellow at the Adelaide Institute for Sleep Health at Flinders University. And my research interests have been around community-based models of care for obstructive sleep apnea. Thank you, Qingli. And Nick, you're well known to us. So uh, how about a quick bio from yourself? Yes, thanks, David. So I'm Executive Dean Health Science and Medicine at Bond University and also a general practitioner and primary health care services researcher. This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. Now, today we're looking at sleep apnea and particularly sleep resources for primary care. So I might just start with you, uh, Professor Ching Li Chai Kutsa. Why is it important that we think about obstructive sleep apnea and who gets it? Obstructive sleep apnea is one of the most common sleep disorders that we encounter. In Australia, the most recent prevalence data suggests that approximately 20% of middle-aged men and 10% of middle-aged women will have evidence of moderate to severe OSA. The risk factors for OSA are the male gender. They seem to have a higher uh, risk of developing sleep apnea compared to women uh, with a ratio of about two to one. Obesity is also a major risk factor as well as increasing age. After the menopause, women seem to have higher risk. And craniofacial abnormalities are also thought to be important, particularly, for example, in Asians who have a similar prevalence of OSA despite having lower body mass indices. And other sort of craniofacial things um, include having uh, large tonsils, large tongue, a retruded chin, and then also increased alcohol intake as well. And so the types of symptoms that patients with sleep apnea may report Um, or in in fact, it's actually perhaps their partner that may report that of um, troublesome, loud snoring during the night, witness apneas and the um, the patient having restless sleep. The patient themselves may wake up with a choking or gasping sensation from their sleep and have disrupted sleep with frequent awakenings and poor sleep quality. They may report waking, feeling unrefreshed as though they haven't slept all night and suffer from uh, excessive daytime sleepiness. They may report things like poor concentration and memory. They may present after having a car accident or work-related accident. They may report moodiness, depression, that they're lacking um, energy and motivation and fatigue. And it's men who tend to present with the classical OSA symptoms of snoring apneas and daytime sleepiness, whereas women tend to present with the less specific symptoms of fatigue, depression and insomnia. And the, the sort of the physiological changes that occur as a result of having recurrent obstructive respiratory events that lead to things like intermittent hypoxia and fragmented sleep can have significant impacts on multiple organ systems throughout the body and thus, you know, lead to problems of poor sleep, daytime sleepiness, um, increase the person's risk of having a mood disorder like depression, anxiety, reduced quality of life, increased car or work-related accidents, um, as well as increased risk of developing hypertension, particularly resistant hypertension. And observational studies have found that sleep apnea that is untreated has been found to be associated with higher risk of developing cardiovascular disease, heart failure, arrhythmias, glucose intolerance, nocturia, renal impairment, male sexual dysfunction, and even a high risk of malignancy. Now that is a really big mouthful. 
<laughs> and and of course, I think we we do have to remember uh, its impact on cardiovascular risks. Of course, we are aware of the accidents, but the cardiovascular risk is something we have to keep reminding uh, our GP colleagues of. Uh, we understand the heart failure, but tell me about the chronic kidney disease. Studies have shown that you know there, there may perhaps be an association between obstructive sleep apnea and signs of, of uh, renal impairment, for example, increased proteinuria. Yes, that's something uh, we don't often think about. So when should a GP decide who needs a sleep study and what kind of a study should we really um, request? So as I've mentioned all the symptoms previously that a patient may present with or their partner may, may you know, encourage them to see their, uh, their GP with um, concerns about snoring and, and witness apneas. There are simple screening question, questionnaires available to GPs, such as the OSA 50 questionnaire um, and the Stop Bang um, questionnaire that can help GPs identify patients who, are, who may be at high risk of having sleep apnea and who should proceed to sleep study testing. Um, the OSA 50, for example, was one uh, a questionnaire which I developed as part of my PhD studies just over a decade ago, and has four simple items in a, um, in a with a simple scoring system that asks about uh, waist circumference, history of snoring or witness apneas, and if they're age 50 or over. Now, in terms of the types of sleep studies that are available, um, there are four main what we call levels of sleep study testing, depending on the number of recording channels that the device uses and whether the study is either attended, for example, in a sleep laboratory setting with a technician present or um, unattended in the patient's own home. So level one is the gold standard laboratory-based full laboratory testing. Um, level two is the full sleep study testing, but conducted unattended in the patient's home. And level three and four are the sort of used devices which have only a limited number of recording channels, um, for example, like oximetry or airflow, and are designed generally for use um, in the patient's home unattended. Now, it's important to be aware that the Medicare rebate is currently only available for either level one or level two full polysomnography. Also, if a GP wants to directly order a polysomnography without the patient having seen a sleep physician first, um, the patient needs to have a high risk of having symptomatic, moderate, severe OSA, as indicated by a positive response to an OSA screening questionnaire, which can be either the OSA 50, the Stop Bang, or the Berlin questionnaire. Plus, they need to have evidence of at least mild daytime sleepiness, as indicated by an Epworth Sleepiness Scale score of at least eight. Otherwise, the GP needs to refer the patient for assessment by a sleep physician first. One of the complicating factors uh, is that you can get a sleep study in so many places these days. And if a GP just refers, say, to a clinic or a, a business that sells uh, CPAP machines, mm. requests a sleep study but does not specify levels because we probably don't know. Yeah. What happens to these kinds of studies? Are the reports reliable? What are the, if you like, uh, problems that can arise from multiple places that can do the studies for you? You know, this is one of the reasons why I think it's important for GPs to be better educated about sleep apnea diagnostic techniques and about management, because there are a lot of commercial entities popping up that do, you know, that offer home-based sleep studies. Um, and often, you know, if a GP has referred directly to them, the sleep physician review is often limited to them reporting a sleep study without them having actually you know, seen a patient. And so that could lead to poor care for the patient if 
particularly if it's a, a CPAP store, pushing sales of CPAP. And if particularly if the GP has sent the report and they're not able, you know, doesn't have the appropriate knowledge and skills to interpret that study and offer the patient, you know, the whole thorough assessment and treatment, um, all their treatment options, including non-CPAP therapy options, that can lead to poor care for the patient. And hence why, you know, it is really important for GPs to understand the reports that the patients are returning to them with. And um, as you, you know, it's, it's very difficult to know what the quality of the sleep study that is being done um, and how it's being reported. Kingley, why should the GP at all refer for a um, level three or four study if we've got less channels and less information? I mean, my research has shown that, you know, these level three and four studies can, you know, they're simple testing devices that can be done much more cheaply. Often there's a scoring that can be done like auto in, using automated software. And so these tools, when used appropriately, particularly if they need to be, have been validated in the population that you want to use them in, can help improve patient access to care. Um, but it is important that um, they're used in the appropriate patient population that, you know, the person interpreting also um, understands the, the data that's coming out of them and, uh, you know, and, uh, and that these tools, that these devices have been appropriately validated. So if I have a patient who has significant symptoms that mm -hmm. suggest uh, OSA and the question is suggest they're at high risk, should I just refer these patients to a sleep physician for one of the level one or two studies? Look, I think, as I said, if the GP is appropriately educated and they understand how to interpret a sleep study report and they are aware of the treatments available for sleep apnea and the patient screens positive, you know, on a screening questionnaire and has evidence of at least mild daytime sleepiness, I think that GPs have the capacity to be able to take on some of the, that sort of diagnostic and management process. Um, I think, you know, the specialists, because there are a limited number of sleep positions available and long waiting lists, so I think, you know, I think it's appropriate for GPs, appropriately trained GPs, to be able to manage some of the more straightforward sleep apnea cases, whereas, you know, specialists should be referred patients with the more complex sleep apnea and, and management of other sleep disorders. I hear you loud and clear, but I still think that GPs interpreting a sleep study report well uh, yeah. is not actually something you find frequently out there. Yeah, I, I agree. I think currently that is the current status, but you know, with some of the work that we've been doing, we hopefully we will get to a point where there is better and more widespread education of GPs to be able to understand um, and interpret the sleep study report. Oh, that would be great. Now, uh, what what patients with sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, mm -hmm. actually need treatment, and what are the treatment options? So, in determining which patients need treatment. I tend to be guided by the symptoms that they present with, for example, the, looking at the degree of sleepiness they're reporting, impacts on their partner and the relationships, occupational and driving risks. I look at the severity of their sleep apnea on the sleep study, including the apnea hypopnea index, as well as the degree and pattern of oxygen desaturations overnight. And I also consider their medical comorbidities, for example, if they've got resistant hypertension, if they're suffering from mood disorders, 
recent diagnosis of atrial fibrillation and underlying cardiovascular disease. Um, in terms of the treatment options, lifestyle modification is clearly a really important aspect of the treatment and first line, given that sleep apnea is so strongly associated with obesity. So things like advice to lose weight and healthy lifestyle uh, advice, for example, avoidance of alcohol in the late evenings is important. CPAP therapy is the first line of therapy for symptomatic moderate obstructive sleep apnea and patients who may have mild sleep apnea but are, um, are suffering from severe daytime sleepiness. Although, you know, it's important for um, the doctors to be aware that CPAP may not always be well accepted or tolerated by some patients. And so it's important that patients are well um, supported during the initial stages of CPAP um, setup as early experiences with CPAP influence their long-term um, acceptance and adherence. Failing that, if a patient is unable to tolerate CPAP or refuse use CPAP, it's important for the treating doctor to consider and discuss alternative non-CPAP treatment options. And these can include things like um, oral appliances or called a mandibular advancement splint. These do tend to be better for the more mild, moderate sleep apnea or simple snores who don't have sleep apnea although they are a, a very um, good second-line treatment option for patients who have moderate severe OSA but refuse or can't tolerate a CPAP machine. But they do, however, need to be custom-made and properly fitted by a dentist who has received specific training in dental sleep medicine um, and have experience in making oral appliances. Another useful therapy for patients with sleep apnea is a, what we call a posture control device, and there are a few on the market. So there are some patients who will have evidence of obstructive sleep apnea almost exclusively when in a supine sleep position, but then their breathing is stable when they're in a lateral position. And these patients can be treated um, often quite well just using supine avoidance. So a posture control device is a small electronic device with a position sensor that uh, is worn either around their neck or chest, and it vibrates whenever a person turns into a supine sleep position, making it really uncomfortable for them to stay on their backs and encourages them to turn over. Um, and these can be um, a cheaper and, and better accepted alternative to CPAP in the appropriate patient group. Other treatment options may include referral to an ENT surgeon to look at, for example, tonsillectomy in patients who present with large tonsils, um, nasal surgery to reduce nasal resistance in relevant patients who have nasal pathology to help improve their tolerance to CPAP treatment. And then there's the um, multi-level upper airway surgery for sleep apnea in patients who refuse or can't tolerate CPAP or an oral device. And there's also recent that is currently underway to develop simple testing uh, methods which can help define the person's underlying um, pathophysiological cause for their sleep apnea to help guide clinicians, clinicians towards the most effective therapies for that specific patient and enable development of um, personalised therapy recommendations. So there's some really exciting research happening in that space as well. Uh, I, I would love to hear more about the personalized uh, prescription. And I do wonder, it's a question about your posture control device that vibrates <laughs> and wakes you up. Um, doesn't that cause fragmented sleep? Look, you know, I think, I mean, in, traditionally, you know, even when I started in sleep medicine, we were recommending, you know, the tennis ball stitched in the back of the nightshirt. And, um, you know, some research that was done now seemed to show that patients didn't particularly like using it, that they weren't compliant with it, it was very uncomfortable. 
So I guess there is that potential for it to, to disrupt sleep if a person is constantly turning on to their backs. And I think it, it's believed that perhaps with time and, you know, that these can sort of train them to get used to sleeping in a lateral sleep position. Uh, and certainly uh, less fragmentation than if a person is having continuous obstructive respiratory events throughout the night. That's a good point. Um, Chenny, just very quickly, I know it's rare as hen's teeth, but who would end up with a multi-level airway surgery? Either, you know, there are some patients who, you know, outright refuse to have a CPAP treatment and, and do favour a surgical approach because they think that it can offer them a longer term cure. Um, there are patients that I have that also, you know, they've tried CPAP, they've tried a splint, they really don't like them or they can't can't tolerate them, um, and then request to see a, uh, an ENT specialist um, for upper airway surgery. Results satisfactory? Look, you know, I was involved in a, a multi-centre randomised controlled trial, which did show improvements in daytime sleepiness and improvements in the apnea hypopnea index overall in patients that were offered surgery. Although there are, you know, some patients will respond better than others. Now, let's look at the more important issues now that comes around excess and equity and, uh, if you like, commercial interests in this space. So what are the current issues with uh, what are the issues with the current models of assessment and management of uh, sleep apnea? Yeah, so as I've mentioned, you know, we only have a limited number of sleep positions and also sleep laboratory beds. So waiting times to be able to access diagnostic testing and specialist reviews can be expensive, particularly for public hospital-based uh, sleep services, such as the one that I work in, uh, where waiting times can exceed a year um, to come and see a sleep physician. Furthermore, sort of sleep disorders centres and sleep laboratories tend to be located in metropolitan areas. Um, so patients who live in rural and remote areas often need to travel long distances to be able to access care for their suspected sleep disorder. And we've already spoken about the issues with the commercial models of care, which are um, heavily focused on CPAP sales and um, concerns where patients may not receive adequate advice um, about um, all of their treatment options and be, feel pressured to purchase an expensive device when it may not be indicated. Which brings me to a point. I mean, if a patient needs a CPAP machine um, and, and they don't end up sort of getting very clear advice on exactly what to buy, I don't mm. think my GP colleagues, all of us, know exactly what it is that we need. We kind of know, oh, yeah, humidifier is probably good. But they range a lot in prices, don't they? Yes, look, they can. Um, and then we have some patients who, you know, think it's cheaper to buy machines online, for example, but then they're left without having that you know, the personalised support. So I often discourage my patients from, you know, going online and, 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 and buying devices, even though they seem cheaper. How do GPs work with, uh, if you like, helping a patient choose a device and ensure that the patients are not caught up in some kind of a commercial uh, situation where there's a need to buy high-end models? It can be difficult because we often rely on the CPAP shop to demonstrate to the patient the different models that are available and also to fit them with an, you know, the appropriate mask as well. So I think it's important that GPs are aware of the different types of, you know, there's a fixed pressure CPAP device versus an automatic uh, titrating CPAP device. And so if, if GPs are educated about how they work and, you know, recommendations, 
that they can provide to their patients, as well as, you know, being aware of non-CPAP therapy options as well. So if things, you know, if, if for whatever reason a patient can't tolerate CPAP, but they're also armed with uh, knowledge about the non-CPAP therapy options um, so that they can consider them as, as possible uh, therapy options as well. Yeah. It's clear to me that GPs need help in this space. Um, yeah. We need to learn quite a lot of things. So what work is occurring to explore greater involvement from general practice in the care of patients with obstructive sleep apnea? We received funding by the NHMRC back in 2018 with five years of funding for a primary care centre of research excellence called the National Centre for Sleep Health Services Research. Um, with the aim of improving the knowledge and engagement of primary healthcare professionals in sleep disorders management, focusing on the two most common sleep disorders, which are OSA and insomnia. And this CRE involves a number of universities across Australia, professional organisations like the Royal Australasian College of GPs and the Australasian Sleep Association, consumer groups and industry. And through this work, we've been able to undertake both qualitative and quantitative surveys to establish current knowledge and attitudes of primary healthcare professionals towards sleep disorders management, identify any barriers and facilitators mm. to primary care management. We've looked at ways to improve education of primary healthcare workers by engaging with uh, the professional organisations, as I've mentioned. Um, we've developed primary care-based clinical guidelines for OSA and insomnia management, which Professor Zwa will speak about soon. Um, and we've worked with clinical translation experts towards implementing our research findings into practice, including an exploration of the changes that may be needed in health policy and funding mechanisms um, to facilitate um, primary care management. And we're also currently undertaking clinical trials to better evaluate primary care-based pathways to identify and treat sleep disorders, including um, a recent receipt of an NHRC partnership grant. So we're going to be conducting a large cluster randomised controlled trial to evaluate a general practice-based model of care for OSA and insomnia, which utilises simplified diagnostic and treatment tools led by GPs and their practice nurses with support from a specialist sleep service. Sounds very comprehensive, but um, it's great that you're doing all that work. But if a GP accesses the resources, how, how do we? How are these information or resources given to GPs? Uh, how is it structured? So, in terms of education programs, we are you know there are modules that are available on the RACGP um, GP Learning Online platform. Um, Nick Zvar will soon talk about the guidelines which are available online and so he'll be able to you know, speak to you about that and sort of just general promotion you know the Australasian Sleep Association have received some funding as well uh, to beef up, beef up educational resources for primary care too so you know and through conferences and different ways that we're, we're looking at to to better promote these resources. Uh, the resources will be kept up to date Yes, yeah, I might get, yeah, perhaps we should get uh, Professor Zwa to, to explain that. But yes, they will be. We, we hope to maintain them and, and, and keep them up to date as best as possible. Well, Ching Li, thank you very much. It's a lovely way to segue to Professor Nick Zwa. So Nick, to you again, uh, will those resources be updated? Yes, they will, David. Um, so the Australasian Sleep Association is going to maintain them and keep them up to date in the long term. Uh, so, uh, and they've been approved as a accepted clinical resource by the RACGP. So they'll be, they're on the RACGP website. 
uh, and that will be a way to access them. We're also working with a number of health pathways groups around the country to um, make them available through health pathways. So as you know, if you take a health pathway, you can link out to uh, an evidence-based resource which will back up the information and provide a greater depth of, of, of support to GPs. And as um, Jing Li was saying, we've tried to make them very practical and useful. So uh, we've provided summaries for OSA that take you through the process step by step that, that uh, Associate Professor Chai Kurtzer was talking about. Uh, and also, I think importantly, the um, questionnaires uh, such as the um, uh, Stop Bang and the Epworth Sleepiness are available on the website and you can score while you talk to your patient and then it will automatically calculate the score and you can print it out as a PDF or save it as a PDF. So if you're trying to work out if someone's eligible for a Medicare funded um, sleep study, um, as, uh, as Ching Li was saying, you'll be able to do that using the resource. Uh, and it also has some information about interpretation of a sleep study as well. Mm -hmm. uh, the apnea hypopnea index and what would be classified as mild, moderate or severe. Uh, and, and I think that will help in what we were talking about. It's about well, what do you do next? If you found a patient who, who has sleep apnea, and that's common as, as we've been talking about, well, what does this mean? You know, and, and is it a significant health problem or not? Uh, uh, quite a lot of information about the lifestyle advice, which um, we've been talking about, as well as the different treatment options, including CPAP and positional devices uh, and uh, mandibular advancement splints, the oral appliances that uh, Ching Li was talking about. So I hope it'll be a, a fairly easy um, resource to use. We've tried to make it as searchable, easily searchable as possible. We've had a number of GPs test it out and give us advice on how to make it intuitive and easy to find things. And we'll be, we will have some funding that's gone to the Australasian Sleep Association to evaluate and to modify if needed to make it even better. So yeah, I certainly hope that the resources will be helpful. They've had input from a range of uh, experts, sleep physicians, psychologists, pharmacists, GPs, obviously, in the development and has been approved by the Australasian Sleep Association as, as well as uh, the RACGP. So yeah, certainly hope they'll be of use for both obstructive sleep apnea and chronic insomnia. Uh, Nick, it's really comprehensive and it's very well thought through and it certainly sounds practical. Just a quick uh, yes or no answer. Uh, there are certain requirements uh, that, requ you know, when it comes down to driving and occupational, will there be links to these sorts of legal? Yes, yes there's links to the roads assessment. Yes, that's absolutely right, um, David. So you can link through to uh, the, ver the roads assessment, uh, roads assessment um, information. And there's also some guidance on one of your questions earlier about when you might think of referring to a sleep physician. You know, the more severe people with heart failure, um, complex comorbidities, uh, neuromuscular disease, significant COPD, etc. So I hope it will provide a bit of help there on when, when you might think, okay, well, I need a sleep physician's help here. And also where a, where a dentist might help with a mandibular advancement splint, for example, as well. Yeah, and some of the challenges with CPAP. You know, um, we know a lot of people buy a CPAP machine, use it for a while, and then it sits under the bed. Or, you know, it's a bit like the those people buy a home exercise bike and you see it out on the street. It's kind of the modern equivalent for some people of the home exercise bike. And But that's, you know, really, if someone buys a CPAP machine, 
Mm. We want them to, to be find it comfortable and use it because if they're going to get the benefit, um, uh, then they really need to be using it enough hours of the night to get that um, better quality sleep and uh, avoid the daytime sleepiness and some of those other things you talked about, like risk of high blood pressure and possibly cardiovascular disease. So hopefully we'll provide some help with GPs on troubleshooting people with we're using CPAP, but maybe finding that they're experiencing some difficulties. Well, I've got to say, uh, Nick and Chingli, I really appreciate the thought, effort, and the how comprehensive the resource sounds. And I really encourage uh, my GP colleagues to really have a good look at it because we do need help. Uh, Chingli, what are your key messages to our GP listeners? I think it's really important for GPs to be aware that sleep apnea is very common, to look out for the symptoms, to know how to screen and um, choose appropriate diagnostic tools to diagnose OSA, to be aware of who needs treatment, um, that there is more to treatment than just CPAP therapy, and to, yeah, about the um, educational resources that's going to be available um, for them to um, improve their knowledge and improve their management of their patients with sleep apnea. Thank you. And Nick, key messages? Yes, I think awareness that these resources are, are available and uh, through the college website and increasingly will be through Health Pathways and that to hope encourage people to, and GPs have a look at them. They try to provide a useful summary, access to the questionnaires that you need to use in assessing people with uh, possible sleep disordered breathing and a whole lot of support on a further assessment and management, which I hope will allow GPs and encourage GPs to be more involved in, in the care of people with OSA and help patients steer through a complex um, health system where there's all these options and how do they choose the path they go. And, and I think the GP will be better placed to provide that support and advice. And to both of you, I really appreciate the thought that has gone into this program. Uh, I, I think of two words, uh, apart from giving us knowledge uh, through the resources, uh, you're really demystifying and empowering us to actually take control of a very common condition that really, you know, where the demand far exceeds, uh, where, <laughs> where this demand is so great that we don't have at one year waiting lists for a sleep study is just obscene, really. So I, I, I really appreciate every little bit of help we can get. Thank you. Welcome, David. Great to Thank talk. Thank you, David. Great to talk to you both. Bye-bye. Bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.